Well, today it's my privilege to continue in our series of Colossians. This is the third sermon now in. Um, we started uh, with, at the beginning, Colossians 1, and we've worked through Paul's prayer for the Colossians. We, we asked the question, you know, if a church is facing a threat against the gospel, what is the most important thing that they need? And we saw how Paul responded to that. He bowed his head and he prayed for them. God, would you help them to understand what you're doing, what your will is? We may not have expected that, but that's the first move he makes. Well, as we pick back up in Colossians, I would remind you that there were some already among the Colossians or on their way to Colossae who were making claims about how to be a serious Christian that at the same time relegated Christ to a uh, lower, not as necessary role than was due him. Right, they relegated him to perhaps a necessary role, but certainly not a solely sufficient role for their salvation. Now, there were other th- things that a person needed to do, according to these teachers, in order to be acceptable to God. In response to these claims, though, one of Paul's first move is to write one of the most definitive, beautiful descriptions of the sovereignty of Jesus. From every blade of grass, to you and me, to the universe. If you have trusted in Christ, Jesus is sovereign over everything, and you have everything you need in Jesus. That's the theme of this sermon this morning. If you are in Christ, you need nothing else to be right with God. Well, there are two ways to fight error, okay? And Paul is going to go on the offense in a moment and fight some error. But first, he lays out this beautiful picture of Christ. Well, there are two ways to fight error. One way is that you can spend all your energy pointing out how it fails to do what it accomplishes, what what it says it can accomplish, or how what it claims to do and accomplish is something you don't actually need or worse, will harm you. All right, so this is actually a great sales technique. Um, If you want to convince people that they need to buy your blender, you go on the offense and demonstrate that their blender is just not up to snuff. Okay, they might say, did you know that um, tree bark actually has nutrients that's valuable for your immune system? Can your blender make a smoothie out of tree bark? <laughs> well, with the Blendall Blender 6000, you can have even the toughest tree bark in a smoothie form. A healthier immune system is only eight easy payments of 99.99 away, my friend. Right, so there's, that's one way. You go and you show them your product is not good enough. This will take care of your, your need. All right, well, another way to fight error, though, is to present the truth in such a clear and compelling way that the error is plainly seen for the sham that it is. This is another great sales technique, actually having a product that works. Actually having a product that works so well that you don't need to spell it out why people need it. It's obvious why they need it. You just turn it on and it sells itself. Well, Paul is going to use both of those strategies with the Colossians. Um, He's going to eventually expose the false teaching for the hollow, empty deceit that it is, for its powerlessness to stop the flesh, and for the danger it brings people of causing them to shift from the hope of just the gospel. But first, he's going to lay out a powerful and clear, compelling display of just whose kingdom it is that they've been transferred into. So in this section of Colossians, in verses 
15 through 20. So chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 is our text today. Paul intends to make a preemptive strike on the false teaching by reminding the believers that Jesus is sovereign enough to be everything that they need. They don't need what the false teachers are peddling. They don't need to abide by special regulations. They don't need anything more than what they already have in Jesus. So before we look at um, the meaning of the passage, before we walk through it, I, wanna, I want us to make some observations about the unique way that this section of Scripture is structured. I think it's really important and helpful to us. So many commentators have observed that this passage, this passage is structured in a way that resembles a hymn or a poem. Right? It's got, it's got um, meter, it's got repetition, it's got these different literary devices that suggest there's some intentional structure going on here. So some will go further and say that this was probably a hymn that existed even before Paul and that, that Christians were using as a, as a hymn to praise Jesus in their services. And so Paul took it and he's like, this is going to work perfectly for what I want to say to the Colossians. And, and, he, and he includes it in his letter and adapts it to fit his need. That, that's, a, that's fine. I'm fine with that. It was Paul's, if, it, if he's using it, he's using it for his purposes. It's still Paul's intention, even if someone else wrote it. I'm inclined more to the view, though, that who better to write a hymn about the, the supremacy of Jesus than the Apostle Paul? So I'm actually inclined to believe that he made this thing up, <laughs> and, and he actually wrote this beautiful hymn, this beautiful poem for his purposes. So I want to give you guys a visual representation of how this passage fits together. Um, so it's composed in two stanzas. I'll show you on the screen here in just a minute how this is composed in two stanzas, kind of like um, in a hymn. You got first, second, third, fourth verse. But in between those two stanzas, there's a bridge. Are you guys familiar with what a bridge does? It literally gets you from one verse to the other. I mean, usually in a helpful, creative, or interesting way. We, we sing songs with bridges in them. Well, in this passage, that bridge acts as a hinge between these two verses. I, kinda, I, I think of it like a, the body of a butterfly. You have one big wing over here, one big wing over here, and then the body holds it all together. Okay, I think this passage is structured just like that. Um, you have the first verse, you have the body, and then the second, or then the second verse. So the way that this, this, um, this bridge piece, if you will, and I'll show you on the screen in just a minute, the way that it holds together this passage is by first it summarizes the first verse, and then it makes a crucial claim about how the whole verse, the whole poem fits together. And then it summarizes the second verse. So that's the way it works. So let me show you um, how I think this, uh, this passage is structured. Look at the beginning of verse 15. See how it starts, he is. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Now look at the beginning of verse 16. Or, I'm sorry, look, look at the beginning of verse 18. He is the firstborn from the dead. Do you see that repetition of the structure that he is the firstborn? He is the firstborn. I think that's the beginning of the first verse, and verse 18, that's the beginning of the second stanza, that, that, that structure. Well, look at the beginning of verse 16, though. For, Paul is going to give a reason that Christ gets the title firstborn of creation. And so he goes into that reason. For by him all things were created. And he continues. We'll then look at 
the next verse. Four. Paul is going to give a reason that Christ gets the title firstborn from the dead. Because four, in him, all thing, the, the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and he goes on. And so you have this, this claim about Christ, this title, and a reason why he deserves the title. A bridge, then this claim about Christ, the, the title that he deserves, and why he deserves it. I think that's the, the structure of this verse, and it's, I think it's helpful to us. Which leaves then verses 17 through the first part of 18 as this bridge function piece that I was telling you about. Now, the first line of that bridge, where it says, and he is before all things, that summarizes the first stanza. The whole first stanza is talking about Christ's right to rule over the creation. Because he made it all. He's before all things in that he existed prior to all things, and implied in his pre-existence is that he ranks above it all. He has seniority over it, because he was first and he made it all. Then at the beginning of verse 18, if you look at the third line there, and he is the head of the body, the church. I think this summarizes the second stanza, everything that follows. The whole second stanza is talking about Christ's right to rule over the new creation, the church. He's the head of all things. That is, he's the one from whom all Christians derive their spiritual life, and as such, he's the one who rules over the Christians in all time. But I passed over that middle, that middle line in the bridge, didn't I? What do you think holds this whole hymn together, this whole poem? A brief line at the end of 17 that claims that it is in Jesus that all things hold together. So I just think there are so many reasons why we can see this is one purposeful chunk of scripture that we need to take as a unit and see what Paul, how Paul is using it. All right, so this is the way I think the passage fits together. <clears throat> now let's walk through it and uh, take a closer look at what, what Paul is saying. So in this text, Paul is, is reminding the Colossians of two reasons that Jesus is sovereign enough to be everything they need, okay? Um, the first reason is going to be verses 15 through 17a, okay, that first verse, and that's that Jesus rules over the creation. That's, that's why he's sovereign enough to be everything they need, because Jesus rules over creation. And then the second reason, that second stanza, is that Jesus rules over the church. Jesus rules over the new creation. So let's consider uh, the first reason. Look with me in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He refers back to the beloved son of, verses, of verse 13, if you look back in your Bibles. The beloved son, Jesus. So all of the hymns and he's in this section are all referring back to, to him, the beloved son. Now in, in John's gospel, as he's talking with the Samaritan, we learn that um, God is spirit. That is, he's imperceptible with our eyes. He's invisible. John teaches further, earlier in the book, that no man has seen God at any time. So how do you know what God is like? You need an image to look at. And God has provided an image for us to look at, to know what God is like. Where else have you heard that, that term image used before? Um, have you heard it used or applied of someone else before? Um, if, if you remember way back when Je um, Pastor Brent started Genesis, there in chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, 
God creates man in his own image. And then he gives man the responsibility to exert dominion over his creation. That is, to rule it. And we remember how that went. It didn't, it didn't go well. In short order, he failed to rule well. He failed to image God well in that way. But when Christ came, he imaged God perfectly. So much so that when Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus could respond, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what the invisible God looks like, look at his image, the beloved Son, Jesus. The Son, then, is the invisible God's image, but in what way is he imaging God? I'm using that that noun as a verb. I'm verbing it, okay? I'm not the first one to do that. In what way is he imaging God? Well, he's firstborn over all creation. That's what the text gives us. Now, some modern cults are going to use this passage to attempt to prove that Jesus was a created being. They'll argue that the phrase firstborn of all creation proves that Jesus was the first one in a series of created things, of all things that were created. But I would ask, can you honestly argue that from this passage if we're paying close attention? I don't believe you can. Let me show you why, what I, why I think that. The very next verse, if you look in verse 16, starts with that word for, Okay, now this is indicating that he is about, Paul is about to give a reason for something. Whatever he's about to say in verse 16 is the rationale for calling the son firstborn. Okay? Look, let's look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Okay, that's all the places where created things exist. Visible and invisible the two different modes that created things can exist in, whether thrones or dominions, powerful positions, or rulers or authorities, powerful personalities. All things were created through him and for him. So everything that was made, without exception, made by Jesus. So would you stop and think about that for a minute? Do, do you believe that in your week, that everything Every process, everything you can observe, everything you can't observe, was handcrafted by your Lord. Don't remove that personal touch out of what you see. Don't believe the lies that this is just chance, happen, random. This was handcrafted by Jesus. Now let's watch carefully for the logic between 15 and 16, okay? We're still talking about why, um, why Jesus is not the first of created things. So you tell me if this, this, uh, this logic fits with the title firstborn in the sense of first created in a series. Okay, so if, if the reason provided in verse 16, because the Son created all things in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, that's the reason why he should have the title first one created of all things that were created. For some reason, that logic doesn't connect for me. Because he made everything, that's why he should be called the one who was made first. Whatever you understand firstborn to be in verse 15, it has to follow from the grounds of verse 16. The term firstborn is used in another sense in the Bible, and arguably a fairly common usage, right? It isn't always used to describe the one who came first in a line of children, all right? It's sometimes used as a title 
for someone who rules over something. Let me illustrate. In, in Psalm 89, in verse 27, God is speaking to David, and he says to him that he's going to make him the firstborn, the ruler of all the kings of the earth, the highest of the kings of the earth. So you can observe two things from that, from that psalm and what God is telling David. First, you can observe that David is not the oldest in his family. He's actually the youngest. So right away, there's some kind of way to use firstborn that isn't talking about the first one made in a series, okay? And secondly, it looks like that phrase firstborn, that term firstborn, is in parallel or is in apposition with highest of the kings of the earth. I'm going to make you firstborn, highest of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is firstborn of all creation in the sense that he is the rightful ruler over it. I think you'd be more accurate to change that that little um, preposition from of to over. For he is the firstborn over all creation. Now how does that logic fit? Because the Son created all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, that's the reason why he gets the title firstborn over all creation. You make it, you get to rule it. Well, God's beloved son, he came and he imaged God perfectly. And he not only rules over creation well, but that qualifies him to rule over God's new creation, the start of which is the church. Before we get to the bridge in stanza two, the second verse, the second reason, I want you to notice that last phrase in verse 16. Look at the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. Did you catch that little, that little phrase? This, that little phrase, for him. This little phrase answers one of the biggest questions that we have in life. Why am I here? Men, women, brothers, sisters, I know why you're here. I know why, I know why there's an earth. Like that's, a, that's an audacious claim to make. But this little, these two words give me confidence to say, you exist for Jesus. You exist for someone more than yourself. You exist, more than, you exist for more than the good of others. You exist for Jesus. I exist for Jesus. Don't let that little phrase pass by you without feeling the weight of it. So one reason that the Colossians should believe that Jesus is sovereign enough to be everything that they need is because he is sovereign over all creation because he made it and it was all made for him. So in this little bridge section now, Paul summarizes that whole first stanza by the statement, and he is before all things. That state of being clause, he is before all things, refers to Jesus' timeless position as the one who both existed before all things in time, kind of like, like John says about or Jesus says in response to the Pharisees when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, that's the kind of before we're talking about. And as that one who existed before all things, he's the one that is above it in rank. He's sovereign over all creation. And look at that middle line in the bridge. And in him all things hold together. When we look around at this creation, 
Um, if you're anything like me, we make a bunch of assumptions about the way things work. We have to. We, we have to be able to function without all the knowledge. So we make assumptions, and we live based off of those assumptions. And a lot of these assumptions that we make are based on these patterns and observations that we've made. We call them laws of nature. Laws of nature. Have you ever stopped to consider, though, when you observe one of these laws in action, say gravity or the law of constancy, you're not just observing some impersonal force that God started. You're actually watching Jesus sustain his creation. You're actually seeing Jesus at work, being faithful to hold everything together. I hope that affects the way you worship the Lord when you look at his creation. When you, when you get to stand and watch this beautiful vista, and you say, thank you, Lord, this is beautiful, um, I think it will be enhanced, and you will have greater gratitude when you make this connection, and you're, you're sustaining it as I look at it. God, you are powerful. So the magnetic pole of the earth is Jesus holding the earth together. The cycle of the earth spinning into and away from the sun every 24 hours is Jesus holding all things together. All right, let's look at the third line now of the bridge. And he is the head of the body, the church. The statement that summarizes the next verse. The next stanza, if you will. So the second reason that the Colossians should believe that Jesus is sovereign enough to be everything they need is because he's sovereign over the church. Jesus rules over the church. Jesus rules over the new creation, verse 18 through 20. Now, um, as we wrap up that, that, uh, that third line in the bridge, however, there are many metaphors that are used to describe the church in Scripture, and one of the prominent ones is a human body. Um, Jesus is to the church what a head is for the body. What does your head do for your body? What would you do if your head was not on your body? You just, you do nothing, unless you were a chicken. Heads are like the command center for your body. The head tells your body what to do, it governs the body, it rules the body, it provides nourishment to the body. Paul is trying to help us understand how Jesus relates to this new creation, how Jesus relates to this church. He rules it. But he's not, he doesn't, he's not um, a part of this body like any other part, not like a hand or a finger or an arm or a leg. He's the head. And as the head, the church follows his leadership. It looks to him for nourishment. It does whatever Jesus pleases. And it just so happens that whatever Jesus pleases is really good for us. So when Paul talks about the church, he's using a word that um, in common day was just used to describe an assembly of people coming together for common purpose. But when we read about it in the New Testament, as we come across that word, almost every time it is being used in a special way to talk about the assembly that gathers around the Lord Jesus as their head. So now we, we move out of the bridge into the second stanza, and we, we look at the second reason, because Jesus rules the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now that word for, for beginning is being used as a title in this verse. 
right? It's referring to the role that a person takes. It's the one with whom a process begins. Jesus is the one with whom a process begins. It's used similarly to this at the end of the Bible in Revelation, um, where Jesus says that I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Jesus is claiming that he's the one with whom the process of everything started, and that he's the one with whom the process of everything will culminate in. But is this the way that Paul is using it here? I think he's, um, that use fits the first verse of Jesus being the beginning of all creation, but I think the beginning is, is referring to something different and something specific in this second stanza. He's the beginning of the church. He's the one with whom the process of this new creation has begun. Do you ever consider the church as a tangible product of God beginning to make all things new? Or do we tend to see the church as merely an institution or a temporary project of God to share the gospel with the world? And then when Christ comes, he's going to make all things new. Well, how did Jesus start this new creation? How did he, how did he begin his church? He started the church by first rising from the dead and then sending his spirit from heaven to come and live in all those who trust in him, all those who recognize that Christ's death and resurrection counts as theirs if they'll trust him. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in two senses, okay? He's the first one to ever rise from the dead and never die again. Many people were raised We read that in scripture. Many people were raised from the dead before Jesus. Jesus himself raised many people. But all of those resurrections were temporary. Those people died again. But Jesus' resurrection is a different kind of resurrection. It's something new starting. It's the kind of resurrection where you never die again after it. So he's firstborn from the dead in that he's the one who started this thing. But second, as the one who started this new kind of resurrection, he's the one who gets to rule over it. He's the one who rules over it. It's the same logic from verse 15. You make it, you get to rule it. You start it, you get to rule it. Well, what was the result then of God raising Jesus from the dead? Continue in the text. That in everything, he might be preeminent. If you were the preeminent chef in all America, what would that make you? If you were the preeminent quarterback in the NFL, what would that mean? It would mean that there is no one better than you in your, your area of expertise. No one ranks higher than you. If you listened to Ephesians 1 being read, we heard this kind of language, that Jesus would have the name that is above every other name, both in this age and the age which is to come. That's preeminence. Philippians 2, when Paul writes to them, He says that he came and humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and died on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's the definition of preeminence. Being given the name that is above every other name. So that at that name, every knee should bow. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus' obedience, 
his death on the cross, and finally his defeat of death by rising from the grave qualified him to get the name, preeminent one, Lord. So what's the reason that Jesus is fit to be the one who starts the church, to be the firstborn over from the dead, who gets to rule it? There are two reasons, and that's what verses 19 through 20 go into. See how verse 19 starts four. See, we go for reasons. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. All the fullness of God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. There's that language again. And here's how. Making peace by the blood of his cross. So the first reason then, is because it was God's pleasure that all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. It's really simple. That God the Father wanted all that he is in himself to dwell in a human form on earth so that people could see what God was like. So he sent God the Son to show the world what God was like. And not only to see what he was like, but in meeting him and repenting of their sin and trusting in him, they might be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God. So Jesus is fit to be the one who rules over the church because he has the fullness of God dwelling in him. That makes him qualified to rule over the new creation. That's the first reason. But there's a second reason. He says God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus. So Jesus is fit to be the one who rules over the church because he's the one through whom God intends to bring reconciliation. But there's really just one reason, if we look, look at the text, there's really just one big reason why Jesus is fit to be this person. Do you see it in the, in the verse? God chose to dwell in Christ and to reconcile all people through him because of why? Because it pleased God. There's your reason. That's why, that's why Jesus is fit to be the one who started, starts the church. It is God's pleasure. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did, God, why did God save me? Like, why did I get to hear the gospel? Why did I get to hear about this reconciliation? Well, you have an answer here, because it pleased God. And that's enough. It wasn't because your worthiness. It wasn't because your rap sheet. It wasn't because your list of things done well or your balance of right and wrong. The reason is grounded in God's pleasure. Well, what exactly are all the things that God is reconciling through Jesus? The text says, whether on earth or in heaven. That phrase kind of calls to mind back from verse 15. It's the same phrase there, whether in heaven or on earth, but kind of inverted. It's a clue that we're talking about the same all things, which is absolutely all created things without exception will be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus, death, and resurrection. But about what kind of reconciliation are we talking about? If, if it's going to be all things, all created things, without exception. Some of you might be getting uncomfortable a little bit about what it sounds like I'm implying. Okay, like you've been a pastor for two months, and it sounds like you're getting really close to talking about universalism. That, that false doctrine or that false view that states that everyone's going to make it to heaven eventually because God just loves everyone and he's going he's to 
make sure no one suffers in hell and they're all going to be with him. Sounds kind of like what I'm, what I'm flirting with. However, that would be a terribly unbiblical error to make. And people only make that erroneous conclusion with this text when they misunderstand what reconciliation means. What does reconciliation with God mean? What does making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross mean for all things? Well, reconciling something does not always imply a positive result for the one who's being reconciled. When God judges his enemies and sends them to hell, they have been put into a right relationship with God regarding their unrepentant sinful life and his justice. That's right. Justice being enacted properly, sin being judged. Peace has been brought about. In hell, sinners are properly relating to God's holy character. Jesus' death is not only the means by which people who trust Christ are positively brought into a right relationship with God, but it is also the means by which God decisively judges and defeats the powers of darkness and deals with sin. So then this, this, the second stanza, then the second reason Jesus rules over the church, what is this different resurrection, resurrection, this new creation called the church that Jesus is the head and beginning of? Well, the church, this new creation, is God's plan of reconciling all things, making a new creation actually commencing in history. The church is God's plan of reconciling, reconciling all things and making a new creation actually happening in time. So if you're trusting Christ's death and his resurrection as your only hope to be made positively right with God, then you are a part of this church. You are already a part of this new creation. And God has begun to make all things new in you already. Of course, until Christ returns visibly for a second time, God's new creation work, his church, has only begun from the inside and is starting to work itself out from inside of us. But when he comes again, we're still waiting for new bodies. We're still waiting for the curse to be lifted. You know, Satan and his force still act like they're going to win this. The earth still longs to be physically remade. All these things are things Christ will do when he returns at any time in his second coming. And then he will complete his process of making all things new, which he began at his resurrection. So as I close this morning, I want to ask us a few questions. First and foremost, I want to ask you, have you been reconciled to God have you been reconciled to God? Has there been a point at which you acknowledge that your sin makes you an enemy of God and you need Jesus to pay the debt that you cannot pay? Let me just ask you a simple question. If that's, if that's you, you're not sure whether that's happened or you can't point to a text that gives you confidence that 
that's me. I have been reconciled to God. Can I ask you a question? Would you become a Christian today? Would you just surrender your, your old life that doesn't submit to Jesus as Lord and say, I'm, I don't have what it takes. I need Jesus' work on the cross to pay for my sin. My heart is corrupt. It always gets me into trouble. It, it wants things that aren't good for me or for others and certainly not for God. Would you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus? Another question I'd ask us is, is the purpose for Jesus' death and resurrection that we saw in this text, do you remember that purpose? That in everything he might be preeminent. That's why he did it. Is that purpose um, visible in your life? Are there areas in our lives where it doesn't touch? He's preeminent in maybe these ways, but that way, let's not go there. Is he preeminent in your decision-making? Listen, I got to talk with a family this past week, and I got to see what preeminence of Christ looks like in decision-making. This family has to decide, make, make a big decision on what are we going to do with our, our life. We're at a transition point. But whatever they do, they said they, 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 just, want, they just want to advance the gospel. So that's going to be the main thing that, that affects what decision they're going to make. That's the preeminence of Christ touching your decision-making. How about in the way you, that we use our time? What does your calendar look like? Does your calendar reflect the preeminence of Jesus in your life? Or in the things that we choose to enjoy, what we talk about with others? Another question I'd have for you is that if Jesus is this much in charge, if he rules all creation, if he rules the new creation, then what grounds do we have for fearing? If there, if there are areas in our lives that we are gripped by fear, what does that say about your view of Jesus' sovereignty? What does that say about the way we view our Lord? Well, he's Lord over a lot of things, but not this area that has got me gripped, that I'm anxious about, or that I'm fearing. I would encourage us, colonial, like, if there are areas in our hearts that, that we are gripped by fear or anxiety, please see that that is not Jesus preeminent. Would you just confess that and ask the Lord, Lord, help me with this. I struggle with it. And give it over to him and allow Jesus to be preeminent in your life in that way. So brothers, sisters, we, we don't need anything greater than Jesus to be accepted by him, to be accepted by God. We don't need anything greater than Jesus to face the trials that we face. He can protect us from evil. Why? Because he, he's sovereign over it. He can save us from our sin. Why? Because he's in charge of everything. He paid the price for your sin. He can raise us from the dead. Why? He came up with that idea. He can lead us in a life that pleases God because he's ruler of everything. He's the Lord of creation, Lord of the new creation. He's the Lord over you and me. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this incredible text. It's far more incredible than I've just displayed it. We know that, Lord, that your word, they are your very words, and that they will not return void. We thank you for that. That's my hope. That's our hope. 
Will you take these words? Will you change our hearts with them and cause us to love our supreme Christ more than any other loves? Amen.